Welcome to the Growth Pioneers Podcast. This is your host, Doug Irwin. On today's episode of the podcast, I speak with my dear friend, Craig Macy. He's a startup lawyer and former serial entrepreneur. We cover a lot of different topics, including what not to do as a startup founder, how to align your incentives with your advisors and partners, and just talk a lot about lessons learned from our many years running and participating in startups. So let's get to it. Here's my interview with Craig Macy. Welcome, Craig, to the Growth Pioneers podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm just really looking forward to this conversation. I've just really enjoyed knowing you all these years, and I've been looking forward to having you on the podcast. So thanks for coming today. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah. So let's start a little bit of your background so people can learn about who you are. I mean, one of the things that I just appreciate you, you know, first I'll say you're a lawyer. So, you know, hopefully people will continue to listen after I say that, but you're a, you're a one of a kind lawyer. And so I, I just want to have learn a little bit about your background. Uh, so tell us a little bit about where you went to school and how you got into law. Sure. So uh, I kicked off my academic background studying theology uh, in Texas. When I finished that, uh, Went to Kansas, uh, Wichita State University, got a degree in analytic philosophy. Finished that, was trying to figure out what to do with myself. Uh, was I going to go sit on a hill cross-legged and ponder existence or do something else? I, I chose the something else and ended up going to Harvard Law, graduated from there, and um, immediately gravitated away from the law, moved to Washington, D.C., joined a startup this was pre-Netscape IPO, so okay. these were early days. Yeah. Internet in a Box had just come out to give you a... I remember those a, days. Yes. We're dating ourselves. <laughs> yes, we are. Worked with that company for a, a short period. Uh, took a position at Microsoft, changed my mind, went to a startup in Silicon Valley, and was there uh, for quite a long time. Again, not practicing law, uh, working in various capacities in startups. One that went public, one that got sold one that died. So I, I got to uh, taste all of that, worked closely with a number of VCs. And then uh, when it came time to start a family and was completely burned out, uh, headed to Reno. And uh, I've been doing a variety of things since I've been here, including uh, finally shifting over to the law, which is what I was trained to do after all those years in business. Yeah, which is, I mean, what a, a circuitous path. I mean, I, I'm, I'm super curious about analytic philosophy, but we'll get back to that. What type of law do you practice primarily right now? It doesn't fall in a bucket very easily. Some would call it startup law. Sometimes people call me an IP attorney. Some would say corporate. Some would say emerging growth. Some would say startup. It's across all of that. But I think if you had to, if you had to put a, a label on it, it probably falls corporate. But the reality is I deal mostly with, with uh, startups and early emerging growth companies that are trying to scale. That's, you know, it's, it's very cross-functional, interdisciplinary business meets law every day. And uh, you don't have the luxury of specializing because the questions are so overlapping. So, and, and I think to providing value to such companies these days, it doesn't work very well to be a patent attorney. And then when they come to you and ask about doing a patent, that there's you know, a good hour's worth of business discussion to lead up to whether they ought to spend any money or a lot of money even pursuing this. And so I kind of mixed the background of the business experience I have to try to help uh, these entrepreneurs and, and business owners figure out a way to relate differently to me, to relate differently to the law, 
and to have law inform what they're doing rather than have the law tell them what to do so that, you know, I'll tell them a lot. I say, well, we're going to, I'm going to give you all this information and then we're going to make some decisions about what to do and don't worry about it. I'll tell you when to worry. You have enough other stuff. And uh, so that's kind of how we try to navigate through things, but it's, it's a broad stroke. It's not one thing. Yeah. I mean, I I would call you a go-to attorney. You're one of our go-to attorneys because it's rare to find attorneys that have a lot of operational experience. I mean, it's one thing, you know, you know, I've worked with a lot of attorneys, a lot of good ones that have a lot of transactional experience and have been there, but it, you know, on the side of their clients, but it's another thing to have run companies, to be the CEO, to raise money, to have to hire and fire people and go through that from the vantage point of the founder. And I think that's one of the things that really um, differentiates you and gives you a perspective that I just don't see traditionally with the, with other attorneys. I think that's true. And I'll say a lot, you know, I'm a product guy. I've done maybe a good majority of the gigs I've had on the business side have been product related, product operations or chief product officer or something on the product side. And having that understanding about what it takes to get something to market, whether there's product market fit, how, you know, what doesn't work, what the myths are, and then layering that into a discussion about something that might be a bit dry and boring like copyright um, informs it a lot. I often wonder how in the world attorneys can give some of the advice they do without having lived it. It's really hard. I've I've had to go through a circumstance for one of the companies. I came in and took over about a 200-person organization and had to do a 10% layoff. Painful. Worst day of my life. And Super painful. Yeah. But then, you know, but then I think with an employment lawyer, which I'm not, how you should really have to live this before you give advice and and maybe that and you know speaks to if you go to business school they try to have you get some business experience before you come in might not be a bad idea for law schools which usually pick people up immediately out of college change the way their brains work and but they haven't really lived the pain and until you've lived the pain of a CEO which is a lot worse than your worst day as a lawyer Um, I think there's a lack of awareness. I don't want to say an insensitivity, but a lack of awareness to what that client's really going through. They're not looking for legal advice. They're looking for real help. Yeah. And there's just no substitution for experience. I mean, you know, I had to lay off 20 people in our medical device startup and it was by far, I mean, not just the worst day, but the worst week. And it totally changed my, my life as a result of having to go through that experience. So, you know, I, for one, really appreciate the fact that you've been through that and, you know, you, Obviously, you you have a command of the law, but you also have a command of the human experience as it relates to that and the real impact and what that means to the entrepreneur. So I think all of those things are invaluable. And, and this is one of the things that I you know, really appreciate. You. One of my primary core values is being entrepreneur first, which is really about making sure you do the right thing for the entrepreneur above all else. We do that in our community work, and that's kind of how I feel personally. But I, you live that, Craig, and, I, and that's one of those things that I appreciate about you. You always take meetings with people and give them um, free advice. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, I kind of consider that pay it forward, but Mm -hmm. where did that come from? Yeah. So uh, a lot of it comes from what I hated when I was a client. And again, another advantage that the first half of my career was as a client and there were lots of things I didn't like. And so when it came time to try to put my own practice together, I said, well, I'll be the lawyer I wish I had. And some of that is, you know, if you I've never billed somebody for a phone call. And 
that seems strange to me because in the business world, no one would do such a thing. I mean, that's inconceivable. So if you start introducing a clock that hits when someone leaves a voicemail or, and that is a, a strange way to establish a relationship. So, so in some ways it's pay it forward where, you know, I'll talk to anybody who reaches out to me at, at some level. And I provide a lot of help where I'm not billing someone because that's what people normally do in business and they provide assistance. And there are moments where there's, okay, now it's time to have an engagement. You know, you've decided you like the way I think and I like the way you work and maybe we could work together and maybe that would make sense now. It's a little bit of a slower road to engaging with someone, but it pays off because they don't pick a lawyer they don't like and I don't pick a client that can't work with. And and on top of it, I'm not, I, so one of the things I, I talk about to people and it's I would suggest it's been a problem locally for a while is what I'd call vulture culture, where there are service providers that the very first thing they're doing when they're talking to someone is, I need to figure out how I'm going to make a dollar. I, I know we all need to make money, but that isn't a very healthy way to start a relationship with anybody. Yeah. And that'll come. And so, yeah, I, I will put a lot of effort in before we start talking about dollars because that's what we ought to be doing if we're going to make some progress. Yeah, but that's, I, I don't want to minimize how big of a shift that is. I mean, to me, that is an abundance mindset versus a scarcity mindset and one of trust versus fear. You know, And what you really were talking about, which really resonates with me, is fit. You know, There's a lot of opportunity, and not everybody's going to resonate with you as an attorney or me as a coach or as a, as a supporter. You know, it, It's fine. And so just to go through that process and look to see if we – can develop a relationship. I think that's a much better way of approaching it. And, you know, this whole idea of rent seeking or vulture is, I think, really driven on on fear and scarcity. And that's just, mm -hmm. I, I just think that's the wrong mindset. Yeah, I agree with that. So tell me the name of your, your firm. So rather than name it Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe, I called it STEAM. Oh, uh, interesting. And... Yes, it's STEAM, the acronym. Oh, okay. So for, it stands for but, uh, Science, Technology, well, Engineering, Art, and Math? It could. Oh, it could. Okay. It doesn't say that, and it doesn't have dots after it, and it wasn't registered in the trademark office okay, so related not, to an acronym. Gotcha. So but, we, but it all of my clients, without exception, fall into those categories. So therefore, it's uh, it's appropriate and you know things I might do in the future that, that get start to combine tech with law, it'll be a a useful and appropriate name. Yeah, no, I like that. I'm especially curious about art. I think one of the things I wanted to go back to was you mentioned really this philosophy. We kind of talked over it kind of quickly, but the idea of really helping individuals change their relationship to the law. I think that mm -hmm. was really insightful. So tell me a little bit more about that. You mean on the on the art side? Or? Well, just in, uh, in broadly in terms of the philosophy of your firm, and then we can talk yeah. about your art clients. Cause... You know, it's mostly, and it goes back to what we we were mentioning before is getting them used to interacting with you as a partner. And I know there's a lot of lip service that lawyers give, you know, we're your partner in business and it doesn't feel like it though. You know, this is one where, I mean, I will call you, you call me. We have lots of normal discussions that people would have if they were standing around the water cooler that may or may not be legal specific, but it's business specific. And the reason is this. So, so the, the model I have is based on a pretty low monthly priced thing, so it's predictable, like things should be. But 
it means that I have to be really efficient. The only way I can be efficient is to help you avoid making mistakes because if we have to fix them, then it's very costly. So we, we get this alignment of incentives where I need you to talk to me. Tell me what you're up to. Tell me who you're talking to. Let me look at the agreements. Let me just, you know, you're not going to get billed for it because you're paying a monthly fee. But if we stay on top of things, we won't create problems. And if we don't create problems, then it's easier for both of us. You know how many times that I have held off on a problem because I didn't have the money to pay for an attorney? Right. Like that, it's, it's just a total paradigm shift in thinking about how to work with an attorney. And so I wasn't sure if that would work. You know, I, I kind of honed this model for years. Okay, well, how could you really pull this off? How will clients behave if they have unlimited phone calls? And, and, and my theory was, having been an entrepreneur, I don't have time anyway. So it doesn't matter if it's unlimited phone calls or unlimited anything else. They're still busy trying to run a business. And so it's actually no different, except that there's less hesitancy to call on the important stuff. I still have to kind of push to get in on maybe the things that people think are less important, but I'll usually tell entrepreneurs, tell me everything because the thing you think doesn't matter could be the thing that's going to cost you. I mean, it could, it, it could be the existential threat to the business itself. I would, I'll often describe it as, you know, you've got nothing but landmines in front of you and my sole job is to help you pick the ones to navigate around and hope the other ones don't kill you. Yeah. But we can't get rid of them all. But I've got to know what you're up to to kind of help you not accidentally step on one. So you have to talk to me, and you're not going to get billed for that. So please, that has worked. I'm not going to say surprisingly well. It's worked exactly like I hoped it would uh, and has helped for the first time compared to some prior uh, legal experience I've had stay ahead of the problems instead of reacting to them, which from a from an old billables model is perfect. Please go make a mistake and then I can write a $10,000 document for you. Yeah. I, don't, I, I don't want to write a $10,000 document. That's no fun for me. Yeah. I would much rather have a five-minute phone call and avoid the $10,000 document. This is, you touched on this and I think this is, the, the, the key point here is your incentives are aligned. And I think this is so challenging for entrepreneurs. I mean, you, you only want to work with people where your incentives are aligned, whether that's your investors, obviously your your co-founders, your your, your you know your employees as much as you can, but your lawyer <laughs> seems like an obvious one. But that's definitely not how the billable hour structure is set up. I mean, just inherently, there is a bit of a misalignment in terms of incentives. Yeah, I, I think you know law firms tr keep trying to do different things. They'll call it you know alternative fee models and this is fixed price or this is not to exceed or this is a range and they try to come up with ways to do it but i just think it's much more holistic than that and that's back to the changing the relationship yeah. is changing the, the the model doesn't change the relationship and so the model is can support it but there has to be more to it than that you know again i mean i have certain things i use to keep track of what my clients are up to and call them to I'm not going to call it nagging, but sometimes it is just to say, you know, get updates because they'll continue to progress on things, forgetting that there might be legal consequence. And then, you know, just by, you know, catching them on the phone on the way home or something, then uh, that helps a lot. I do. A, I probably work more on weekends than I do on weekdays because people are free more. And so, you know, I get a lot of these. Oh, wow. Thanks for doing this in off hours. I, say, well, I don't look at it that way. 
again, being a former startup guy, there aren't, there is no such thing. You do things when it makes the most sense. And for a lot of them, they're most peaceful on the weekend. And that's a good time to make sure, you know, everything's under control before they get back in the weeds on Monday. Yeah. And this is really driven from your why, right? I mean, you know, the model itself, the subscription model, that's kind of the how, the what, but it, fundamentally this has to be driven from your core beliefs. And I think that's why it's such a, it's such a breath of fresh air. So refreshing to hear you talk about this because I know you put entrepreneurs first. You, you've you been there, you want to help people. And so you've structured it in a way that supports that. I think that's just, um, you know, you're doing the right thing for the entrepreneurs. Well, I hope so. It's a hard job. And I don't think, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, especially that aren't serial entrepreneurs, don't know what they're stepping into. And so it's, you know, anything I can do to help because it's a tough road. And if some of it's a reality check, but also some of it is, well, if you're going to go for it, I'll support you however I can. But it's every day is a, is a tough day. Oh, so. yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, some of my some of my best days were entrepreneur as an entrepreneur and some of my worst days and some of, and some days were the same day. Yes. Which was always fun. Every, you know, every day is an exercise in manic depression. Oh gosh. I, I got a, when the paddleboard company, we got a call from REI and they, they put through their quarter million dollar order. And I was like, this is amazing. You know, we've been working on REI for a year. And then by the end of the day, I got a call from our manufacturer in China and they had some huge problem and they were going to be able to, they had to delay everything. And so we couldn't actually fulfill the order. So I just went from elation to depression in the course of about six hours. Yes, it's uh, and that's tough on the body. It really is. Yes, and that's one of the things for me. You know, I, I at going into Edon and, and doing entrepreneurial support. I I my sense of it is I just want to help entrepreneurs live more well. If I, if there is such a thing, I mean, it is like you said, it is a very challenging road. It can be very rewarding, but it is hard on the body and the mind and the family and the community and it, it can be. And mm -hmm. so that's one of the things that really drives me is to really find ways to help support entrepreneurs live happier or more content mm -hmm. along the journey. Yeah, I think and I think when you look at it that way, that's the important part. It's not I'm going to provide this particular professional service. It's no, I'm going to try to make this a better experience for you. And thinking from that perspective versus this is my sushi menu of services I provide, that doesn't necessarily connect with them being content and happier and more productive and more successful. Yeah. It's really cool that this is like the culmination of a lot of years of your work. I mean, we've we've known each other for a long time now, almost probably eight, nine years. Mm -hmm. And you know, you've in that time you've you've run companies, you've been a lawyer at different places, but now this really feels like it's it's kind of the perfect amalgamation of all the things that you've learned. And it, it really feels like it serves entrepreneurs, which I think is, which is great. Yep. It's, uh, again, I've danced around it for a long time and thought about trying to do it. But finally, the, the, you know, the time seemed right, both, you know, professionally in terms of opportunities and then where my, my head was at too. Yeah, that's great. So yeah. what was really the impetus behind your name? Well, the, it wasn't what I didn't start off going, oh, I'm going to call myself Steam. It was, I'm not going to use my name. And I, I didn't, again, trying to start to get away from some traditional notions of law. There's a lot of firms now, particularly ones that deal with startups, that have opted not to call themselves, the use the traditional monikers. So that was, really, you know, I started trying to come up with something that was suggestive of what I would do, that I thought I could do a trademark that might be good if I develop technology offerings that go with it. 
and went through the name exercise I help my clients go through when they're trying to come up with branding but not step on trademark problems. That's how it, it started. And this was one of the options. Interestingly, when I registered for the mark, it was opposed by a gaming company that has a service called Steam. And anybody who does gaming online knows what Steam is. And uh, what I was registering the mark for had nothing to do with gaming, but that didn't stop their big giant attorneys from threatening me, which was wonderful. And then, then I decided I absolutely wanted this to be the name and that we were going to do this. And so I, I got on the phone with their attorneys and said, well, you and I both know you'll lose, but here's the best part is I've got a new firm I'm setting up. I specialize in IP law and I have nothing else to do. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But this. So this is fantastic. You can help me make a name for myself. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to get started. So please proceed with your opposition. And they laughed and they said, let us call you back in five minutes. And they did. And they said, yeah, we're going to drop the opposition. And, and that. so at that point, I felt, okay, this is my name. This is definitely just was a sign of, uh, yeah, I'm going to go with this one. Forged in fire. as Yes. So it's battle hardened. Yeah. yeah. There's so many trademark issues that come up. It, it just, and it, it just feels like rent seeking. You know, when I was at Priya, we got a trademark violation from a Priya healthcare and, you know, it was kind of close, but we were not in the same world. And fundamentally what it cost was $5,000, mm -hmm. you know, and at the time that, I mean, it's not horrible, but we had to narrow our scope. Every company I've started, I've run into some kind of trademark issue. And it just, that just feels sort of like the ambulance chasing section of IP law. I don't know. Maybe I just had a bad experience with it. I don't think so. It's, this is, it's the one that's easiest to walk into. And, you know, it's a little harder to run into a patent infringement circumstance where a patent troll actually comes after you. But the trademark and copyright stuff is a lot easier to trip, you know. And so in the copyright world, what the, the most common thing startups see is they took an image off the net and Getty Images comes after them and you're going to have to pay out on settlement maybe $1,500. Sure. And that's, you know, pay to play. And so, but nobody knew any better. Then, but on the trademark side, it's trickier because people name their companies without thinking about checking and or they get married to a brand on the name of a product and when i look at it or we'll do a quick search it's you know there's risk here and i don't know whether someone's going to come after you but if you proceed with this you you're you're making a risk decision just like every decision you make every day in your startup but now we got to make the call and there's a lot of stuff you try to do to navigate around it but yeah it's one of the earliest i don't not my mistakes, but oversights. Yeah. It's it's a problem that you know. There's a series of things that startups tend to make mistakes more than anything else, and one is you know trying to armchair things on their own. Yeah, and so yeah, I'm going to file the trademark myself. I'm going to pick my name without help. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that, and I'll be fine. And and some of these things I can't fix it. I mean, you already did it, and you're out there. And unless you want to unwind all of your naming, I can't. I can't make the problem go away. You now carry this risk all the way through trying to raise money, all the way through becoming successful, and all the way through somebody give, sending you a cease and desist when you've put a million dollars into your branding. So this is a good teaching moment. So what would you advise all startups as they're looking out to create names as it relates to trademarks? 
So I give some loose guidance when, I, when I'm talking. The first thing I say is talk to somebody that can give you good information on branding that covers sort of legal PR marketing, all of it, because there's different things to factor in. But I try to give examples. You know, why is it that all of these companies in Silicon Valley used goofy misspelled words? Because they have a million other things to do that they can't worry about their name and getting sued. So they do something ridiculous. And those are the best marks. Now, someone say, yeah, but I really want a mark that's going to tell someone what I do. Now, that's a shortcut on day one, and it seems really smart. It's the worst kind of mark for a hundred reasons. But if you're going to build brand and become successful, it doesn't do you any good anyway. You may as well pick something that you're sure doesn't have baggage. And that should be your focus more than I want something clever. As I'll usually tell people, anything you come up with you think is clever, somebody else already has. Somewhere in the world, somebody else has done exactly what you're doing because you're not that much more clever than every other person on the planet. So get away from clever and all that stuff and try to come up with something that is either fanciful, that has nothing to do with your business. I mean, so the farther away you get, like I, I like Slack. I mean, that was a good idea. That was a that was a pretty smooth name, you know, and that's one that before I do a search or anything, I'd say that's probably a good name for what they did. But even Google, I mean, Google's honestly. another good one. Apple was a good one. I mean, these are things that have nothing to do with anything, and that's a better thing. And it also kind of sticks in your head. And so I think entrepreneurs away from names they're married to in their head or th thinking that they have to use the name to tell people what they do is that's, you know, my first order exercise when I'm talking to anybody launching a company. And especially if I can get in there early before they marry up with the name and set up an entity with the name and all, I'm like, okay, whoa, you know, hold up there. Yeah. And now's the time to think this through because fixing it's a pain. And this is again, back to efficiencies for me. I'm a lot better off if we knock it off early. If we have to go through name changes, then that's a pain. Yeah. So. Yeah. Which I think this is one facet of a bigger conversation, which is the things that entrepreneurs get married to that prevent them from being successful. Yes. So trademark, you know, the name is one of them. What about the idea and just getting married to the idea? What advice would you have when an entrepreneur comes in and says, I have this brilliant idea? So this is one where I, I'm probably a little more coarse when I interact with the entrepreneur is, and I don't start with this phrase, but, you know, an idea is not a business. And I used to do talks on this. And it's become a, a more prevalent problem than it used to, I think, because there's a lack of knowledge about how people actually build companies and get funded and get exits and all those things. And not having lived through the process of trying to execute on all the things that you have to do in a particular order. And so people will have an idea and they are in love with this idea. And then they go tell people and people say, that's a great idea. And then they come to me and they go, this has legs. People love this idea. And I'd say, yeah. And there's a million of these ideas out there and a million businesses that try to execute on them. And almost every one of them fails. And so to get away from the idea and get into the execution side and that, you know, your serial entrepreneurs know this. This is why VCs invest in those that have done this a few times is 
they go to the important execution questions and quickly get away from the idea or the better mousetrap. If I build this, then people are automatically going to use it because it's really cool and people told me they like it. And that that's a good starting point to get yourself excited as a motivation. Now uh, you're going to have to crank. And uh, I was reading an article this morning. It's on the guys that started Clubhouse. Oh, yeah. I just, I'm on Clubhouse. I'm trying to figure out how to actually... Yeah use it. Yeah. I mean, I've listened in a little bit. It kind of feels like the back in the 80s for the 800 like group chat numbers, yeah. but but way more interesting. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting in the niche that it's filling in what you would have thought there were no more possible social platforms. But they didn't get there. They didn't just pop up with an idea and go, here we go. They're serial entrepreneurs with lots of fails and their story is interesting. And so they did not start out with the idea of Clubhouse. This is multiple companies and then multiple iterations of multiple ideas being birthed from inside of working at Benchmark as an entrepreneur and resident. It's kind of, it's not just, I got an idea yeah. and I asked some people and they really like it. How do people react when you tell them their baby's ugly? You've gotten pretty good at telling them in a way that's probably not quite as harsh as I just said it, but honestly, they hear it, but they're going to do what they do. And I can say it till I'm blue in the face. And all I can do is hope that I get them kind of in the execution lane a little bit. Uh, for most of the time, it goes nowhere. I mean, because it's for a lot of, and, and particularly in, in Reno, and I do, I have a lot of clients in Vegas too. It's their first run. Yeah. And so it doesn't matter how many times you tell them that if you build it, they won't come they don't believe it. They're going to go do it that way anyway. Yeah. And so I just factored that in. I put it out there and then I try to, whenever I can, push them into the execution lane and out of the, this is my passion. Which is one of the reasons why I think Startup Weekend has been so powerful. I, I've watched this, you know, people come in and they have this beautiful idea that, you know, that, again, it's been validated by all their friends. And then we say, okay, go, go talk to a hundred customers. And not once have I seen people come back and be like, oh, we're going to build exactly what we came in to build. Mm -hmm. Never. It never happens that way. You go out there, people are like, yeah, I'd buy that. But if you could do this, oh, I'd really like to do that. And the, and the smart people are like, oh, that's that person's heron is on fire. We can help solve that problem. And they pivot. So often I think people get this idea and then they're afraid to share it in the world because they think someone's going to steal it, number mm -hmm. one. I mean, and I guess in theory you could give up IP, but that generally isn't the problem, right? Right. You're really you know, looking to get market validation or trying to find product market fit or just getting more insight. But, you know, anyway, I, what I've, I just have never seen people really, the thing that they came out with and the thing where they end up as being the same thing. It's very true. I think, it, you know, the pivot became a, a word that has its own sort of meaning and thoughts behind it. But I think any successful company, if you look in, in the weeds at how they did it, they're adapting all the time. And you know, one day they're an AI company and the next day there's something else. And you know, some of the pivot is just outward facing positioning. Some is, you know, product, slight product mod. Some is product overhaul. But that, you know, need to navigate and adjust all the time yeah. um, is it's the difference between success and failure. Being doggedly married to this one thing because you're sure it's valuable. And because somebody told you the key to being successful in entrepreneur is persistence. It's, you know, you got to let that go. And yeah. you got to be, you know, you're constantly intaking all this information and adjusting all the time. I think it's, it, it's harder to do if you're by yourself, you know, because well, you're just talking to yourself. Yeah. It's a, another problem we have here is, you know, in the, the clubhouse being another example is 
you start with the people. I mean, they'd already worked together. Before they pick the idea, they pick a team. What you'll find a lot in Reno is people will have their idea and they try to go as far as they can in the cowboy culture by themselves. And they don't, and it, they often go too far. Um, they didn't put the team together at the right point. They got off center where they needed to be. And the focus is on the idea rather than, you know, as a team, we complement things and it gets adjusted and navigated. And you're relying on all these outside mentors and inputs, which are fine, but they can't take the place of the legs on the stool that, you know, are given, you know, uh, maxims in, you know, in cities where you see entrepreneurship blossoming, you have to put the team together. And that's, pivoting on your own it just doesn't happen very much it just stay i'm staying in my i'm staying online yeah no it's keep and, on and target because you do i mean you the thing that's complicated about that is you do need persistence as an entrepreneur but you need to per, you need to climb the right hill and too often people are you know persisting up the wrong hill number one i also think this is probably a function of experience like you said you know we have a lot of uh, first-time entrepreneurs, and that's and they're looking to validate their product. So, so I think there's a big mindset shift. As as my friend Darius would say, you just have to get your your face ripped off a few times. Mm-hmm. That's really helpful and yes. you know painful, but you know instructive. And once you get that, you realize, okay, you know this is not about me going out and validating myself through my idea. It's about I have a thing. Let me go see what I can learn about the world about that and then adjust to adapt to solve the problem for the customer. Right. It's a mindset shift. And I don't think that it's rare to see first-time entrepreneurs get there on their first go-around. Now, mm-hmm. they can with the right support and having you know quality advisors mm-hmm. is super helpful. But I think that's – maybe this is why – VCs don't like to fund first-time founders. They like mm-hmm. to have you have a, either a success or failure. I, well, I think, and and you know, you can confirm or deny this yourself, but I would not fund the old crack. I mean, before I before I I knew what I know now, uh, I I shouldn't be funded. I, I'm going to fail. I I've, I'm a high-risk investment because I don't know enough about these mistakes. To your point, getting your face ripped off or those things, I thought it's always been overstated how much VCs, oh, you know, we like to invest in people who have failed. No, they'd actually prefer to invest in someone that had three successes in a row. Don't yeah. kid yourself. But what they're saying is you need to have been in the soup for a while. That's what reduces their risk, and that's what their game is. And so, yeah, it's um, that's why the cereal is attractive, not because it proves people are committed to being entrepreneurs. It's because, oh— you know, this isn't, you know, when we say first rodeo or whatever cliche, you've already been through this thought process. So you're probably going to make a better decision since you've been through this process before. For sure. And, you know, I appreciate all the angels that supported me in our medical device company. But I'll tell you what, I mean, I learned a lot and I didn't know a lot going into that. I remember one of our pitches, I was standing there at the angels dinner and when somebody asked me, what's the gross margin on the product? Not only did I not know what the gross margin on the product was, I didn't even know what gross margin meant. <laughs> and so there I am, you know, deer in headlights and I'm like, um, next question. And the next question was, no, I'm really interested in hearing the last question. <laughs> so it's getting worse. I'm sweating. And I, you know, I just, a BS answer of in, in line with industry standards and then moved on, you know, right. I'm like, oh my God. But, you know, we still raise money and I appreciate their support, but I, you know, I've lived that experience where, you know, just, it was just hubris and blind optimism. <laughs> you know? and, and there's, there's room for that, you know. And you the, need some of that. And, and in fact, uh, you know, I, I always think, uh, not, I'm not going to go down this road of how I compare uh, startups to 
the life of Van Halen, but it's <laughs> why not? You know, there are legs on the stool that perform certain functions, and you know you need a front man, and that front man might not be the best musician, but there are you know there's a function that that's required there, and so that unbridled optimism, the hubris, all of those things are a necessity, but you better have the guy that's going to sit in the studio night after night fixing and operationally taking care of the other side of it. And so back to the team, that can work really well. I mean, there's, you know, but you have to remember what everybody's role is. Totally. Well, it was going around, there was a meme for a while. It was like you needed a hustler, a, a hacker, and a hipster. Yeah. You know, as a as a core foundation of yeah. any team, so I thought that was you know it's pretty good. I, it's a good you know any of these heuristics are good ways to think about it, yeah. and uh, I've seen plenty of you need at least three people, and they've got to be these types of roles or something. And like I don't know if it's an absolute, but three is a pretty good number, yeah. and five would be even better. But uh, three you can get away with one by yourself for a year. I will bet against you. Yeah, and I hear you. It, you might be able to pull it together later, but uh, not boring the issues that start to develop and and resentment for earlier time put in and who gets how much and all of this. If you did not put the sweat equity in in the early times, then it just creates a strange imbalance. And so it's good to have that team right away. Yeah. yeah. It's, well, it's a really interesting signal function. People don't understand that. But, you know, if you can't bring a team together, then it, it says something about your ability to recruit Yes, in a way, right? So the fact that you can't get other people on board with your idea at that stage is kind of a negative from yeah. my perspective. Another thing that I thought was interesting is, and you've probably seen a lot of these, you know, maybe let's take a three-person team where they all have the same equity. What What's your thought on how you do equity structure at those early stages, I broad structure. I suggest to companies that's almost never correct. And it seems like it's fair. Like, let's all be, let's have a kumbaya moment and split a pie evenly and say, well, are you all actually going to commit to do an even amount of work? And, And a lot of times when you peel it, it becomes apparent that that isn't really the proper distribution. It can be. And some, some founders still insist on, we're going to carve the pie into equal portions. That's okay, but it's best to be thoughtful. So I'll often give founders something to start out with called the Founders Accord, and it's just this document. It's before we sit down and start doing the legal work and the formation work, if I get in early enough, and saying, all right, this is going to ask you guys to sit down as a team and decide and answer some hard questions. You know, who's contributing what on day one? How much have you already contributed? What are you going to do? What roles are you going to... All of these things that then inform the harder questions when we get into buy-sell agreements and shareholder agreements and these other things about, okay, well, how are we going to approach this? Because there's some disparity here. Now, at first, people say, we'll worry about it later. And that's where I have to really push hard to say, you know, resentment builds over time. And um, I don't want I don't know if it's fair to say more often than not, but in my experience, more often than not, after a period of time, founders aren't talking anymore. And whether it's a restaurant or a tech company, it doesn't usually end with everybody patting each other on the back. They go their own ways. And so you know, I, I'll say that this is where the lawyer hat goes on. You know, we're, we're doing these agreements not for when things go well. It's for when they don't go well. So if we can have the harder to conversation now and make a better informed decision, we reduce the risk of 
those resentment problems and then uh, bigger issues later that we can't resolve. Yeah, and that's what the data shows. Honestly, I can't remember. I wish I could remember the source of this, but I, I read a report. It might have been Kauffman Foundation that showed companies where the founders had equal shareholdings fundamentally did way less than the ones where they had a disproportionate allocation. And the the reason was because they weren't willing to have the hard conversation up front. And so when things get tough, which they always do in a mm-hmm. startup, that demonstrated that that team hadn't didn't have what it took to kind of manage through that. And then, the, you know, a lot of companies fail just because the founders don't get along. They blow up. I mean, I've had one of those happen to me. Mm-hmm. But so, I, I mean, I think you're your insight in that is totally spot on with the data. So have the hard conversation upfront. I love the founders accord. That's a really cool process you get to take people through. I think one of those things that's so foundationally important. I mean, people probably show up a lot of times, they already have their partnerships, but do you, if you meet someone that's kind of further down, do you try and take them back through that founders accord? Always. Always. I won't call it that. I mean, I don't necessarily, but I will, we still go through that process and it's sometimes it's harder to unwind it but it does surface the questions. And I mean, this is also why it's helpful to have done it because then I can introduce anecdotes that involved me. You know, the situation where I opted to take less than the other founders and why I did that. And so it's not trying to tell somebody you should get less than that person over there. Instead, it's, well, here's something, you know, here's how it's been done in my particular case. And you know, this is how we get to the decision we did. And here's the benefits to taking less. And here, you know, so again, trying to, to figure out what that balance is that gives the company the best chance of being a success. And, you know, I, I try to stay away from the dumb comments about, you know, 100% of zero is zero and things. Yeah, I've said yeah, that. I've I, said that too many times. I know, Sorry. I know. So, yeah, but it, it does get to the point that if you're not successful, none of this is going to matter. So, you have to get things lined up properly. And it's mostly business decisions. Leave, I'll always tell people, well, we can paper anything. It, that's not the hard part. The hard part is getting a, a sound business decision that aligns everybody incentives like it's supposed to be. That's the work and the judgment. And I'll paper it, however. Yeah. But I would much rather in that early conversation realize that one of my potential co-founders was being unreasonable mm-hmm. or, you know, something about that. So it, because now, you know, I would rather walk away from that. Mm-hmm. I had an experience in one of my other companies where I stuck through something and it just was not great. Like there was a lot of warning signs in the beginning. And this is before I had learned things are usually best in the beginning. And, it, you know, it came back to bite me. Mm-hmm. So I, anything you can do to sort of pressure test that in the beginning mm-hmm. I think is useful. And again, this is why seasoned teams and serial entrepreneurs have a better advantage. They've already worked through it. They're battle hardened. They've mm-hmm. been through these challenging things together. Again, you know, not to dissuade the single entrepreneurs out there, but, you know, go find a co-founder or at least go look to talk to a few co-founders. Mm-hmm. It's, it, and if that's something that's preventing somebody from doing that, then you have to really question what's going on. Right. And uh, th- they can still go do it. They just have, you just have to realize, well, you have reduced your probability of success dramatically by trying to go this alone for a year. I wouldn't do that. But as far as pressure testing, you know, almost every little step you take that, you know, you might think isn't a big deal is a, is an important test. So one that's come up and it's happened more than once, you know, I, I push on the entrepreneurs and a founding team. Everybody has to, to sign a CIIA, which is confidential information and invention assignment agreement. Sounds horrible. What it's really saying is I'll keep secrets and everything I work on belongs to the company. 
And it's amazing how many times, and I, and by the way, the one I use is very heavy handed on purpose. Yeah, it's good. It's like, look, if you're signing up for this, everything you do belongs to the company unless you identify it right now. Amazing what suddenly gets identified. Well, I'd kind of have this side gig I'm doing. Yeah. And all of a sudden where you were going to own equal parts, it becomes apparent that somebody's hedging their bets and somebody else isn't. And that leads back to the, you know, why the Founders Accord will surface some of these things will be, oh, okay, well, if you want to keep the side gig, I guess maybe we can agree to do that. And these are founders talking, not lawyer. But then, you know, I'm going to be putting in 80 hours a week and you're going to be putting in 30. That doesn't seem fair. Yeah. But some of this stuff doesn't get mentioned until they're about to sign a document that would otherwise contribute this stuff they're working on the side to the company. And that creates a problem. So it's these little things that people say, well, what's the big deal? Maybe nothing and maybe everything. Yeah, that's the thing that's so disheart- that, that's so concerning is you make those early decisions and you're a year and a half into it. And that decision you made on day one with the best of intent comes to bite you mm-hmm. and then things explode. Yeah. And you, you're, you don't even know that you're walking dead. Yes. And this, I, if there was any reason to go talk to a lawyer day one, it is this. Yes. Like try and eliminate anything that could destroy you from the inside out from day one. I mean, I think that's true. There's, um, and, and I use these a lot in my practice. So you have things called, it's called Clerky and Shoebox and Atlas, all these things that, that uh, suggest to you that they can handle all of your legal paperwork and legal functions as you try to get your company formed. And they're really inexpensive. And I love them for that part. In fact, anything I can do that's not janitorial work, I would prefer I mean, you get a lot for your money if you set up your Delaware Corp through Stripe Atlas. You get it. I mean, it's amazing what you get for your $500. Not enough, though. And it can't replace the kind of thing we just talked about. It there, It's just some papers. And so you have to kind of, you have to do both. Unfortunately, a lot of entrepreneurs will say, oh, well, I just saw that, you know, Clerky said that I don't really need to talk to an attorney. And they don't really say that, but they kind of suggest sure. why pay an attorney a ton of money? It's like Dr. Google. Yes. I agree. Don't pay an attorney a ton of money to go set up a corp. Sure. That's ridiculous. But it's with things that are out there, but you got to draw this line between what's the cost effective janitorial work and what's the part that I need some nudging. Uh, and and to balance those two out. So um, I try to use both. I try to do it, but I'll still tell anyone, don't, you really shouldn't pull even the first trigger without talking to somebody that has some legal experience in launching startups. I'll say that versus, you know, forming a company. Well, that's only one part. If they don't know trademark law, then they may have formed a company and have infringed on a trademark. I mean, so you have to layer all of it together. Yeah. Well, I mean, fundamentally, business is about people, right? I mean, so yeah. we're talking about a lot of the legal frameworks and, you know, covering your covering your butt and doing all of these things. But fundamentally, what you're talking about is how do you create agreements to keep founders and, uh, you know, the, and people working well together? The, yes. I mean, that's really what this is about. And I have to believe that your, I knew we'd come back here, but your your background in philosophy and theology has got to help inform you, who you are today, obviously, and then how it how does that really show up in, in your law practice? I mean, so I think more than anything, if I had to say how does philosophy apply, there's, there's two parts. The first is critical thinking. You know, 
And this, it's come up in every part of my life. There, there was, I'll, I'll go through it with software too, but it's this notion of being charitable to the opposing view. And uh, you're not, in philosophy, your first, uh, at least analytic philosophy in particular, you are, your first thought is, I need to destroy the other argument. And so all you're doing is taking a position, because when you read uh, analytic philosophy, it's very abrasive and aggressive. And uh, it's Daniel Dennett versus Sam Harris stuff. Oh, and yeah. they just well, Some of my favorite yes. stuff to listen to. But. So, and I did that. I was, oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to make this great argument. And I had one philosophy professor look at, you know, and I, I, oddly enough, it was Daniel Dennett Free Will presentation I was doing. Oh, and really? they said, you know, you really should be a little more charitable to the other view. And I said, what do you mean charitable to the other view? He said, well, the people on the other side have held this view. They've cultivated it, developed it. They're academically learned. They, I mean, it's not like they just threw it out there for fun. They really believe this stuff. Maybe you're the idiot and they're not. I mean, but you're starting out with this idea that if you just argue hard enough, you'll end up with the right answer. And that isn't be a lot better off if you're just much more charitable to the other view. I think that's good advice broadly in the world. So, I, and I, I kind of like got that. And then uh, when I was doing all my software stuff, I'm reading this book called uh, The Dynamics of Software Development, best book ever in software. 54 maxims from the guy that was head of Visual C++ at Microsoft on how do you do development. But it's the practical stuff, not how to code. And one of them was don't flip the bozo bit. That was the, and it was the most popular maxim that came out of the book. Everybody ran around the valley saying it. What does it mean? Not getting into what bits are, but sure. But as a recovery engineer, I, yes. I know where you're going. So don't assume the other guy's an idiot. He probably or she probably knows something about what they're talking about. And assume that you're the idiot. And then start with that until and go that direction. So I saw it there. And then, you know, and then the same thing happens with law. So what do I bring in? I do not assume ever that I'm the smartest guy in the room, that I'm the guy with the, the lawyer and the condescending knowledge and all this stuff. I am always going to take the assumption that I don't know and I'm going to get something from whoever else I'm talking to. If we're trying... And I think this is why deals break all the time is you got two lawyers that are taking sides and it's not just to make a buck. Sometimes it's to be right. Yeah. Now, my job as a lawyer is to get to the deal if we can with the least amount of risk and you, the client, get to decide whether you want to do the deal, but I shouldn't be busting the deal. And that requires at least one of the two lawyers to be accommodating somehow and so I try to find this role. To, well, how can I facilitate the deal versus how can I advocate for my client? I'm going to do that. But that's my ethical responsibility. But my job is to get you the outcome you want. And that's a different thing. And so the philosophy bleeds in with all of this way of sort of critically looking at things, how you deal with people on the other side, not how a lawyer argues, maybe how a philosopher would approach it. And trying to unpack it conceptually, take these alternatives, do these other things, layer in this negotiation and try to get to something. I draw on that every day. That'd be the part one. The other part is, what do you learn more in philosophy than anything else? How to go through piles of 
irrelevant information to get to just a couple of kernels that matter. That feels like my last two years of reading books. <laughs> yes. So with the internet, what lawyers are much, in my opinion, are much more responsible to know things than they used to be. I mean, there was no way back in the day you had to go pull books off a shelf. You couldn't possibly know everything you do now. Somebody calls me on an issue. I'm working on something on Freedom of Information Act stuff because of one of something, hey, with a client, I'm like, well, I don't know much about it. Give me an hour. And I was able to, because of the internet, draw this massive amount of direction, enough that I could confidently say what to do next. And so that also, you know, I kind of say, I don't think I would have been a very good lawyer 20 years ago, but I'm pretty good at it now because the tools are different. And they're kind of like when Buffett says, I'm a I, I just happen to be born at the right time. And that's why he thinks he's good at what he does. I'd say, well, I'm kind of okay with this now because tech, this works for me. Yeah. And this is how I process information. And I can get to answers that I couldn't have got to otherwise. So those two things, when I think about how did it help me, that's what carried the day for me. Yeah, no, that's great. It's really clear. And you, you bring up a deeper philosophical question around just being born lucky. You know, I think mm -hmm. we're, that's a whole other thread, but just being fortunate to have been born in this time and in these circumstances affords us lots of things. So I, I didn't know that Buffett said that, but that really strikes a chord. I feel that every day. I just feel very fortunate to be born yeah. at all, and, and especially in this time. Yeah, Buffett, I don't know if this was what he really said or somebody just decided to add to it and paraphrase. I know he said the part about, you know, I was just born at the right time. But I, I heard the second half of the sentence was something to the effect of, you know, if I had been born in another time, I just would have been dinosaur food. And, yeah, to which begs a different question of whether humans and dinosaurs were alive at the same time. But that to, so did you get to, well, that, didn't you study that in theology school? I mean, was that not part of the theology school? Oh, we don't want to go there. <laughs> no, it's good. So you, yeah. just, you draw on, a, you have yeah. a wealth of experience to draw on. And yeah. I think that's the thing, you know, you just, you, you can pull from all these different experiences in your life to help provide the best experience for your clients and the entrepreneurs, which is amazing. And, you know, I think you act as attorney, but you're also advisor, coach, philosopher, mentor, therapist, probably. I mean, you, you have a lot of different roles you play in supporting your clients, and it's great that you have such a diverse background. Yeah, and that's partly back to being lucky, too. So, you know, you know there were not entirely luck. I mean, there were decisions I made, you know, when I graduated Harvard and said, I'm not going to go to New York and be an attorney. My roommate and others looked at me, I, what are you talking about? That's what you go do now. No, I'm going to go do something else. I don't really want to do that. That I look at it now and I'll tell people and they say, oh, that was really gutsy. At the time, it didn't seem gutsy. Uh, it seemed, uh, if anything, it would have been gutsy to go to New York when it's not what I wanted to do. But, you know, because of that one decision that opened up, uh, you know, a 10, 13 year uh, startup career that then provided the background to be the lawyer that I am now that wouldn't have worked otherwise. Yeah. I, I don't know what I would have become or how I would have dealt with things. I was a very different person before I had my face ripped off to sure. use here, you know, over and over again. Yeah. yeah. So that, you know, it's partly luck, but, oh, those were great decisions for a future I didn't know I was going to have. Sure. Which is, I mean, you know, as we're now, we're kind of delving into philosophy a little bit, but you know, I don't think you could have made different choices. Like those are exactly the choices that were made and such that's, that's, so that it's what's happened. So there's mm -hmm. no, 
no questioning that they could have been different. And you, and what I appreciate about you is that, you know, you follow your, your passion or you follow what you believe. You know, I've, I've not known you to, to stay at something for a, a really long time. You, you kind of spend the time, contribute, find, you know, add value, get what you need out of it and move on. I mean, you, you know, you're not moving every couple of years, but it, you've always been one that like really stood up for what you believe in and, and, you know, made decisions that were the best for your family and, yeah, I appreciate that about you. It's a hard, so I, and I, I have to be careful the way I word it, but it's hard to know what purpose goals are supposed to play for somebody. You know, people set goals and then they blindly head towards them. I've set a lot of goals. I don't set goals. It's not true, but I'll say that. I don't set goals. I just walk through whatever the best door is at a given moment. And at least it looks that way outwardly. You know, I think goals are good for setting a direction and seeing a target of what you're heading towards at a given moment, but they don't themselves serve any particular ends. Uh, but people get very obsessed with it. So when I had, when I started the process, which is a, a long stories behind how I ended up going to law school, the, I didn't tell anybody though, because I didn't want for people to constantly come up to me and say, oh, counselor, you know, and start to make me feel like, well, if I don't end up going or I don't achieve these things, then I've somehow failed because that was a goal that got publicized. And I know people will use that to as a motivator. Okay, I'm going to tell people this is my goal and that'll keep me on track. And I've, I've always struggled. I've, well, no, you need to draw from inside. I agree and wholeheartedly. You can have those goals, but really you need to know exactly what door to go through on any given day. Hey, do an amazing job at the thing you're working on. But you know, I tell this to my daughter a lot. Hey, if you're doing a test, that's all that matters today. This isn't about going to a great college. This is about this one test because you might not go to college. You might choose to do something else. And that's great. That's fine. But for whatever you're doing in a given moment, kill it. And then the next thing you do, kill that. If you do enough of those, all of a sudden you have these doors open, which is kind of how I ended up at Harvard was an accident. I was not planning on going to law school or there. It just became an opportunity because of all the little things along the way that I tried to make sure I got right. Yeah, and I, a couple things come up for me about that. A, I, I'm with you wholeheartedly. I don't believe in goals. I believe in aims, so sort of yeah. directionality. I like, like that. So it kind of puts you in that that direction because I think goals can be too limiting. Also, you're not opening up to what's possible, mm -hmm. right? So you know you kind of go into directionality. And then I love what you said about your daughter. You know, one of the other things principles I live by is give everything to everything. So it just means be fully present. You know, right now this podcast is the most important thing. There's nothing else mm -hmm. going on. So give everything to everything. And if you're at a job and you've got a startup, when you're at the job, give everything to. If you're going to start another side hustle, give everything when you're there. Mm -hmm. It's just a, a more about being present, being in the moment, and, and living life through that lens. And it takes a long time to get, well, at least it did for me. You know, I, for, I'd say for the first part of my career, I lived in the future. I was always thinking. I like the future. Yeah. And then I started to live in the past, thinking about the mistakes I made and what could have happened. You know, yep. even if it wasn't a mistake. So I tell this a lot because I'm proud of my insight and disgusted by my lack of tenacity was, um, this was, I want to say 96, it was 1996 and I was working in Silicon Valley and I came across this company, Google, because I was doing, I was using AltaVista or some search that wasn't working very well. And I'm like, oh, this is really cool sounding word. 
this sounds pretty interesting. I, I want to try to get go join this company. And they were super religious about like having a PhD at the time. And my Juris Doctorate was almost, you know, evil. And I could not weasel my way in. I tried to get in through VCs. I tried everything I could, and I could not get in there. Now, I did I know that I never in a million years would have expected they would have been what they become, but it was it was something that I look back and I God, I wonder if I just put a little more effort in, if I could have weaseled my way in there. So I spent a bunch of time considering every decision I ever made in the past and what could have been different. I had to get out of that one too. So yeah, no, yeah, no future, no past today. Yeah. It's a lot easier to live in today. I agree with you. And yeah. this is kind of, we were talking about this a little bit before, but this is why I don't think you could, you, there's nothing you could have done differently. Like the past is about there's, you know, I think people get stuck in the saying, Oh, well I could have gone left instead of right. Well, why didn't you then? Like you couldn't have. And so a lot of times people use that okay, as a way Sam. <laughs> to abuse yourself. Sorry. I am channeling Sam Harris right now. Love the waking up pad. But you know, I, that's actually, I think that's just deeper philosophy. It just, yeah. you, the thing that it, for me at least is it just helps inform future decisions, mm-hmm. you know, so something to be learned from that, but you know, a harp, you know, machinating on what could have been is of no value. Yes. And, uh, but it's a hard habit to break though. I agree. I yes. agree. Well, we could go on for hours. Unfortunately, I think we should probably uh, start to wind it down a little yes. bit. I would love for you to come back on a future podcast and maybe we can dive into the deeper realms of consciousness and uh, other fun subjects. Yeah. I'll drag you into uh, the overlap of neuroscience, law, and philosophy, which is... We could talk about that for days, we probably. Could. We could. The, and it has real practical value. I'm sure it does. Well, again, you know, I just, I so appreciate the way that you show up in the world, the way that you help support entrepreneurs. And I'm just really excited that your your firm is successful. It's uh, Steam Law. And how do people find you? You know, it's uh, steamlaw.com is one way. And uh, otherwise, I, I touch enough stuff around town that people can reach me that way. That sounds so, great. Well, yeah. thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah. Craig, it's been a real oh, pleasure. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you.